You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams, and we are at the Superlative Podcast again. I am with a special guest, Mr. Jeff Staple. Uh, he is the founder of the Reed Art Department, as well as Staple Pigeon, which is a fashion brand. And he recently came out with a new limited edition Undone Watch. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Excited to be on. Now, you have a podcast yourself, so you're a veteran, which is good, and you you understand that um, it's it's the stories behind the things that matter. And these days, I think that's so important, and the topic that I'd like to start on is we see things on the internet, especially all day long, products, designs, things like that, but it isn't until we sort of get into the storytelling phase where we have this sort of emotional connection at what point in your career did you really understand that it's this combination of storytelling plus aesthetic when it came to selling the types of items that you specialize in? Um, I think, I, well, first I want to say 100% agree with you that I feel like the storytelling is is very important. And I think as time progresses um, and as we continue forward like with sort of the technological enhancements that we've been presented with, I think the story is more and more and more important to the point where now I feel like for better or for worse, the story is like 90% of the thing. And the actual thing is only like 10% because of so many factors, whether it's like social media or the ease of manufacturing or 3d printing, um, all these sort of, uh, aspects help to sort of make it where the story is the thing versus the actual physical object. And we didn't even bring up NFTs or anything yet, but that's an even further thing where it's really just about the story of it and not the actual thing. Cause there is no actual thing, you know? Um, yeah. 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 So, um, when did I realize that? I realized that I think inherently very early on where, um, you know, I was just naturally enamored by things that, uh, had a storyline, had a real deep concept, um, you know, and I didn't know it at the time, but I always gravitated towards those things. Uh, and I think it wasn't until a little bit later um, that, you know, uh, I started to understand the idea of like marketing and storytelling and graphic design and, and these things that sort of shape uh, even package design, these things that kind of shape the things that are around the actual object that is being presented to you. Um, so when I understood that, like, oh, wow, there's an actual art form to this stuff and it doesn't happen by accident, uh, I, I was immediately like, you know, I have to get involved in this part of the, the industry in the world. Um, you know, and that's, it's a two-step process, right? Because first you have to learn how to make the thing, the original thing, whether it's a shoe, a shirt, or, you know, a sneaker or a watch. Uh, and then you have to be able to tell the story around it and, like, build that sort of packaging all around it. And that seems to be what really requires or what is required for success is the ability to make something plus to understand how to make it nice. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a diverse set of skills that you don't get in the same place. Like you can go and become like an industrial designer and they'll teach you how to make things, but they won't teach you how to make nice things. And then you'll go mm -hmm. uh, maybe to like a marketing school or an art school and mm -hmm. they'll teach you about making emotional things, but you won't have the first idea even how to make a t-shirt, right? Like it's, they're yeah. not going to teach you that. And so having experience in two completely unrelated areas, uh -huh. manufacturing, and I'll call it marketing design, those seem to be, you know, important prerequisites to to become successful in today's sort of, I'll call it entrepreneurial fashion environment. Yeah, you're right. And there's actually even more aspects to that. There's like, you know, retailing and go-to-market yeah. strategies, right? Like those, so you, after you have the product and it's designed and then you have the packaging and the storytelling, then you still have to like get it, project it out into the world, which is another thing. And yeah, I think, you know, just being an entrepreneur, particularly in this industry that I like to call like street culture, which I think we can sort of further define for your audience because it means many things, many different people. But, you know, I started a business 24 years ago in an industry that did not exist and did not have a name. And so there was really no sort of like 
you know, trade show or industry experts or industry peers that I could even lean on. Like the, the industry itself was just being born. And so not only was I building my brand, but I was also building the entire culture along with it. And in that you had to learn everything from A to Z, soup to nuts. Uh, and so it was just like, I just had to learn on the fly and make mistakes all the time and, you know, um, just kind of trial and error. And that I think is like the best way to learn. Okay. So I got, I got to talk about the definition there because I think you brought up an important point or like what they call streetwear now. And I've struggled with this. Other people have struggled with this and it's, it's not just, it's not just fashion. It's a sort of whole area of pop culture, which somehow gets terms like urban or street. Uh, you know, sometimes they'll just use the word contemporary, which doesn't make sense, but how do we, how do we create one term which really kind of encapsulates like what, what this is? Because again, you call it street or urban. It's not only under-inclusive, but it can also be sometimes insulting, right? Yeah. I mean, I try not to read too much into these things. Like I don't really worry, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't really worry about too much about like trying to put labels on things. Everyone can call it different vernaculars and stuff. But like the way I see it is when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know, there was uh, there was hip hop culture, you know, there was skate culture, there was punk rock culture. And when I say these words to you, you probably are painting a picture in your head, right? When I say rapper, skateboarder, punk rock, like graffiti artist, there's like these really distinct visuals of people, places, style, fashion selections, you know, the environment, right? These things are all coming into your head and they're very distinct, you know? Um, and that was going on in the seventies, eighties and nineties. And what started to happen in the mid nineties was the, the blurring of those things started to happen where, so like you might envision when I say rapper, you might envision like, you know, a black person with baggy clothes on. When I say skate, you might envision like a white kid in SoCal on a half pipe. When I, when I tell you, you know, graffiti, you might envision someone, you know, a, a, a a Latin some person, co- some combination there. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like when, when I, you know, let's just be real. When I say punk rock, probably a white person with skinny jeans on and a leather jacket, right? Like it's, these are the original sort of things and there's nothing wrong or right about that. It just is what it is. That's who gravitated towards different subcultures. What started to happen in the mid nineties was there was a blending of all that stuff. So like, you know, it, it, it became more and more common where like a white kid would be super into rap or a black kid would start skateboarding, you know, and like there was just a lot of adaptation and, and blending there that was happening. And it was hard for, for people to define. I mean, think about it like this. If you, if you had a magazine and you were a rap magazine and all of a sudden there's this thing where like rappers started buying skateboards and BMX bikes and trying to learn how to skate, that's a real head scratcher for you to be like, wow, do we incorporate this trend that's <laughs> happening into our rap magazine, right? Right, right. Yeah, and it, like if, if a punk rock magazine is all of a sudden some, you know, listening to their fans or listening to rap music, do they incorporate a rap page into their punk rock magazine? So this blending started to make industries and people feel a little bit uncomfortable. And what's cool for me is that out of that uncomfort grew this subculture of a subculture called street culture, which was this demographic of kids that had sort of like across color lines, across uh, sexual preference, religious orientation, all sorts of uh, colors, creeds, you know, combinations were into this sort of blending thing. And that really happened like in 95, in my opinion, and it happened in New York City. And it was, when I say subculture, I mean, like, if you randomly saw a kid who was into street culture and you were walking around downtown New York City in the mid-90s, like, you had a friend. Like, you saw that person across the street and you could literally walk up to them and shake their hand and be like, based on the shoes that you're wearing and the clothes that you're wearing, I know that you're informed of this industry. It was a real insider club. Uh, we shopped at two, we all shopped at the same two stores. We all wore the same five brands. Uh, you know, we all wore the same two pairs of shoes. It was really like a, a code, you know, an inner society. And, and, uh, I, I predicted a long time ago that street culture would eventually become bigger than rap, skate, punk, pop music, everything, you know, like it would be like the biggest thing. And, and it, it has, has become, yeah, yeah. It's, it has exactly. And you, you can even argue that the culture of sneakers that aren't used for performance, like lifestyle sneakers, which is bigger than performance sneakers nowadays, is 
is attributed to that street culture. Street culture and sneaker culture are sort of like they go hand in hand, you know, so you can't really separate one without the other. Um, and if you factor that in, I mean, now you're talking about like, you know, a hundred billion dollar industry right there. I'm going to get a, even a little bit more sociological about this because, again, my, my brain is just trying to think about, like, so what do these things have in common? One of the things that ca- they have in common is where the items themselves seem to be primarily about expressing uh, a symbol or some other type of entertainment property, whereas mm-hmm. in a lot of other fashion, it was like, well, it's the shirt, right? It's the mm-hmm. material and the color. And in the sort of the street area, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah the shirt has to have those things. But it's about what's on the shirt. It's the design. It's yeah. it's recalling something else. And I, I also think it's a very important generational shift because let's talk about the watch industry. When I first started in the watch industry, all the watches were focused on things that basically happened in the 60s and 70s and the two degree, the 80s. It was the racers, racers from back then, the vehicles uh-huh. from back then, you know, the, the, the Apollo missions, you know, boating yep, and yachting exactly. and all You're this right. stuff. And like, I didn't grow up boating. I didn't grow up like with Steve McQueen. I grew up with like video games and movies. And that's what you see now in a lot of the street culture stuff. I mean, like, you know, you and I grew up around the same time. And now it's like I I wore a shirt, you know, that I bought. It has the Legend of Zelda on it. Okay, and like Mm -hmm. I never believed when I was playing this game in the 80s (laughs) that I'd be getting like, you know, like winks and thumbs up from people be like, oh, it's Zelda, you know, like it. And and now it's a signifier as someone who's, you know, I'm 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 turning 39 in a, in a couple of in a couple of days here. And so I'm almost 40 uh-huh. as an adult. I am able to connect with other people that shared similar things when they were young. Like we both exactly. remember that that's influenced us. So I think it's 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 not really a new type of fashion, but it's signifying a major generational shift of who's buying and what they were inspired by when they were growing up. You, you nailed it. I mean, it is the symbolism behind yeah. the graphic and the icons and the logos that are on streetwear that's separated from, quote unquote, the apparel industry or fashion, right? Like if you want a great shirt, like you're saying, go to American Eagle, go to Gap, go to Uniqlo, go to Zara. They make great shirts. But what do those shirts say about you, your personality, your generation? Kind of nothing. It just says... Yeah you pick the good shirt. But when you wear, you know, a shirt that has a mark on it, whether it's like a Supreme logo or a gorilla head or a pigeon, and it it doesn't even matter how big or small it is, that little symbol now says that you are in another, you know, club, you know, that says something else about you, like you said about your Zelda shirt. And uh, that's what's really cool about uh, street fashion, street culture. Now, here's the part that I think is important for, you know, people who are more mature like us. Not all street fashion, like all fashion, is created equally. And sometimes someone just slaps a logo or an entertainment property on something. Uh, oh, yeah. But other times you have that real curated element where the mm-hmm. colors are important and the layout isn't important. And, and that's what I think really excites me is how do you take those, you know, that sort of pop culture symbolism but make it aesthetically pleasing? That requires a degree of mastery. What I think Staple Pigeon, amongst some others, have done really well at um, and that's what I think, you know, that's so exciting. And I think where people like us can, as we grow up out of those useful things, we can hold on to it when it's still fashionable. Right. Yeah. The, that's, you're talking about like the, the execution of it. Right. And like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you're right. You can, and, and you know what a great example is you take a symbol like Mickey mouse, right. And you can find some iteration of a Disney Mickey mouse piece in, in almost every store you go into including, you know, Disneyland when you go there in the souvenir shop. So everyone's working with the same Mickey Mouse head, you know, logo, but the way it's applied, executed, sized, composed, you know, like delivered on the garment, the watch, the shoe, whatever it is, that's the skill set. That's that's really the execution of it. And that is really make or break. That to me is what separates like the boys from the men, if you will, um, in terms of like, oh, this guy gets it or this guy doesn't get it um, because of these little things. And it's the details that really matter in a lot of those cases. It's the, the, the layman who doesn't have, you know, he never went to design school, never took an art class. You know, they can't, even they, even though they've never taken any sort of formative classes, they can even look at two things and be like, 
this one's whack and this one's really well done. I can't place why they don't know about kerning, typography, letting, you know, like proper tracking, or they don't know about silkscreen process or embroidery, but they do know that one is better than the other. Um, and I, and that's, that's who I try to talk to is people who like just have that nuanced kind of like appreciation for the finer things. And we have in especially the last several years where, you know, anyone can go direct to consumer. We've seen entrepreneurialism, you know, almost like crazy where everyone, even with watches, has just tried to go direct to market with everything from T-shirts to watches and hats mm-hmm. and clothing and everything in between. And we have seen, because there's very little barrier to entry, some people, you know, doing it really well and other stuff. It's like someone should have sat you down and said, you shouldn't have done this first. But again, there's no there's no gatekeepers. It's just like it's yeah. a free for all. And I actually sometimes worry because what I liked, especially about growing up in the 80s and 90s, is you'd go to a store and for the most part, there was like a buyer or yeah. somebody like that 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 sort of pre-filtered. And now it's <laughs> just like everyone needs to develop like a really good junk radar. And I'm sorry, we're we're at a point in, in our world where the average human doesn't have the best critical thinking skills. Yeah. And you add to that the fact that if you go through your Instagram feed on any given day, there's kind of a formula now, isn't there? Where like you use the right colors, fonts, you know, voice, models, and everything kind of looks like a B minus. Like nothing is an F. <laughs> nothing is a bomb because everyone's figured it out. You know, like like everything kind of has this like, oh, that looks halfway decent and then you you order it and then you're like oh this is a piece of shit <laughs> you know like you got you yeah. get tricked it's easier to get tricked nowadays i i mean i agree that idea of a, of a shop clerk or a merchandiser was a curator you know like similarly for a curator for a museum or a gallery that buyer was a curator for that store and you trusted that that person's vision um and because of the the sort of democratization of social media that role has kind of become antiquated now And on top of that, and I'll just sort of throw another element in there, you don't always get what you pay for. It's, of course, true that if you spend more, you're probably getting a better product. Mm -hmm. But you have these also these schemers that um, they're speculators, basically. And we see it in the watch industry a lot. If I price it at $50,000, maybe people will believe it's $50,000. Right. Right. There's a sucker ball in every minute, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah. And, And it's really scary to me that, you know, for example, I got into T-shirts very heavily over the last few years. We have the Blog to Watch store, and we have some T-shirts. And mm-hmm. what a lot of people don't know is, like, I had to nerd out on T-shirts, like mm-hmm. hardcore learn everything about the fabrics, the cuts, where they're made, printing styles, inks. I mean, stuff that's that's you know old news for you, but like, I really had to go down the rabbit hole of T-shirts. Yeah, you're and it's, giving it's, me PTSD from my from my beginning see, days. See, it's not easy. It's a <laughs> no, pain in the ass. No. And, and so, and one of the things I've realized is that going out and looking at what other people are charging for shirts, it's all over the freaking place. There's some $200 t-shirts that are worth it and some that certainly aren't. And the, mm-hmm. and the average consumer cannot tell from a pretty doctored, you know, really refined photo shoot online. There's so many businesses out there that are just being, you know, rubbing their hands together saying, I hope someone pays for it. I hope someone <laughs> pays for it. It's tough, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, like you get down to the details of like neck ribbing and, you know, like how it washes and dries, all of these things. Like the t-shirt is is one of the hardest things to master. You know, I've been in the industry, I've had my brand now for 24 years and we are constantly tweaking out on the t-shirt, <laughs> body construction. I mean, we literally just have a, had a huge meeting about our blank white t-shirt and how like we have to make improvements on it and stuff 20 years in, you know, it's kind of like this. Um, have you heard of this, this uh, anecdote where like the, the mark of a great chef, if you ever want to test an incredible chef, you have them make, scrambled eggs you just give them an egg and you say make me some scrambled eggs and the oh. way they, the way they make a scrambled egg says everything you need to know about this it doesn't matter if they're a michelin star chef or a diner cook the way they make a scrambled egg it says everything i see i knew there was something simple i didn't know what dish it was so now that i know it's scrambled eggs yeah i think it was uh what didn't they use that in the movie ratatouille uh the the, the disney animated movie i think there was a scene where they had the, the ratatouille mouse make scrambled eggs and the food critic was like completely floored. It, it was a, it's a great scene. Yeah, I think I remember that now. Yeah. I, it's not the first thing that comes to mind from ratatouille, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so let's talk about watches a little bit yeah. because you know you just came out with what I think is one of the coolest undone watches, and you've done a few others. Let's just first talk about how watches themselves fit into sort of a well-rounded, we'll just call it street fashion appreciation. And, you know, we're starting to see luxury come in to this space, you know, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But mm-hmm. just, why don't you just talk a little bit about your um, your development as a, as a watch collector, hobbyist, lover, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's gone in ebbs and flows. I actually, when I was younger as a teenager, I used to collect swatches. And I don't know if you remember in like the 80s, there was a moment where like swatches had like a huge resale value, like really, really big. And then they sort of dipped back down. But I remember selling like old swatch jellyfishes for like $800 in like jewelry stores on Fifth Avenue as a teenager. Um, And I was collecting them. I was a fan of them. Uh, And, you know, not really as a reseller, but really I was a fan of the actual watch. Right. And, um, And so... Since then, I've kind of graduated a little bit to better watches. And watches are interesting because you can easily get into like a gateway drug with a watch with like, you know, a sub kind of $200 watch. Um, But as you start sort of noodling in on like the mechanics and the craftsmanship and, and where they come from, you it's it's an as you know, it's an infinitely deep rabbit hole. <laughs> of, of like, you know, information and, and, and just like expertise that like, you can just sort of fall down. The you, know, you know how I call it? Out, yeah. out of all the sort of levels of nerdery of things you can wear, it's the most challenging area. It's not the only challenging area, but of things that a human being can wear, there's more agree. ways to nerd out of any other item. So that's it's sort of like if you're into watches, it actually demonstrates that you have both maturity and experience and an intellect. Because if you didn't have those things, there's no way you could really be into watches. I agree. I agree that on a, on a, on a wearable item on your body, there is nothing more deeper that you could go down than a watch. I what are you thinking? That. What are you thinking for non-wearables? I could tell your mind is being like, you know, like, uh, like, is it like boats or more, you know, like, I, don't uh, know. I would say maybe the one that's most infinite is fine art, right? That one is just, you, you know, you could argue left, right, up, down 360 degrees on fine art about who's the greatest, who's the most prolific, you know, cause there's almost no, no, uh, rules in fine art. But yeah, boats, automobiles is obviously the top one, probably boats is what's interesting, too, is that like there has to be a democracy to it as well. Like, you know, supersonic jets. Yes, that's a thing. But like it also has to reach a critical scale so that everyone can be part of the conversation like cars and like watches and also like what we're seeing now with sneakers. Sneakers you can go really deep with, too. Um, argue, I agree, not as deep as watches in terms of like the breadth and like how much you can do with it. Um, but the democracy of it, you know, anyone being able to shell out between 80 bucks and 300 bucks, there's not much more, uh, there's not much more that can encompass, you know, sport, innovation, technology, fashion, music, trend, all into a $100 object that you can just buy at a store. There's not too many things like that, like a sneaker. Uh, and in many ways, watches are like that. Watches, in my opinion, are a little bit behind sneakers in incorporating the fashion, lifestyle, music, trend kind of thing into watches. Like, you know, companies like Undone and stuff are like sort of um, bridging that gap, I think, and taking it away from the traditional watch heads. Um, But watches sort of excel much more in the the technical, innovative, um, mechanical side, you know, the mechanical engineering side, if you will. Like if you... Any, anyone who's ever looked deeply in the inner workings of a watch knows that you're basically staring at the universe on your wrist. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, don't even get me started. Yeah. I could go ad nauseum about this. And I, what I like about it, again, as someone who's a curious person, is I've been into watches, I mean, seriously into them since about 2001 or so. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's 20 years ago. And I'm still learning on a regular basis, like brand new areas of information that I knew nothing about, whether it's about a material, whether it's about a history of how something was made, whether it's about how a component of a watch works. I mean, I had to, again, I don't have an engineering background. I have a question asking background Mm -hmm. and I had to learn how a watch movement works. And only now am I starting to get comfortable with the engineering principles and the physics and things like that. Because most people don't 
it's like they know how the components work, but when there's like a new movement that comes out, they don't know why it's an improvement or why it's better or worse. They don't even know how to evaluate movements against one another. Yeah. And I'm only slowly getting there. And then I there's just there's all these different levels of skills. And it's it, it's sort of like building a house where you see the completed house. It looks very impressive to you. Um, and what you really need to realize is it's layers and layers of small expertises yep. built up on top of one another to get the, the, the final component. Yep. And watches are very much like that. And how many things can you study for 20 years and still not have the full grasp of? And it's one inch wide. <laughs> <laughs> I, again, you know, unless you're studying bacteria or something like that, right? <laughs> right. Nano, like stem cell technology or something like that. Now, yeah. I want I want to go back to what you said about sneakers. And it was, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to ask you anyways. I have noticed a, a very interesting explosion. It's not new about sneaker culture from, mm-hmm. you know, the resale markets like StockX mm-hmm. or the level of, sh- of sh- like pre-owned shoe stores where people go in to buy a shoe that they're not actually intending and wearing, but yeah. but owning or or displaying, and I'm like, wow, this is nuts. It's you know, it's it's great for the Nikes of the world, but what can the watch industry learn from things that the shoe industry is doing that the watch industry probably should be doing as well? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, in many ways, watches were doing it before sneakers in terms of resale, right? Because there was for much longer time, there was certain watches that commanded a higher price than the original retail price that it was sold for. But in the sneaker world, that phenomenon really only started to happen in the in the mid two thousands. Um, and in fact, not for you know, not that I want to shamelessly self plug, but like many people think the shoe that I designed, the Nike Pigeon Dunk, is the shoe that started that whole trend of reselling for, you know, increased price. Congratulations. Um, yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's not, <laughs> it was nothing you started, that I was, You started a trend and now people have made a lot of money for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not something that I was trying to do. It just sort of, sort of happened, but there has to be a first, so I'll take it. Nothing great in fashion ever happens outside of an accident. It's always an accident. <laughs> totally. Um, so yeah, I, I would say watches have been doing it uh, first, but to answer your question of what can the watch industry learn, I think the watch industry can learn from the sneaker industry about the about the openness and having a conversation with the the brand versus retailer versus consumer. Um, I think traditionally the watch world has been very closed door between each other, right? It's a very like sort of inside club. And even if you try to get into the club of being down with watches, it, it's very intimidating. Um, and it's also very kind of like snooty, I guess is the word. Like, you know, oh, yeah. sort of, oh, sort of yeah. when you feel uncomfortable walking into a museum, it kind of like watch world sort of the old watch guard really tried to portray that feeling of intimidation. I, I got to explain that to you because I think it's so great you brought that up. And it's really actually a cultural problem mm-hmm. in Europe sort of what in Europe, they feel that they invented luxury. They did not invent luxury, but you ask, you go to like Paris, for example, and mm-hmm. they truly believe that luxury was invented in Paris. And it's true that a lot of sort of like conventions of luxury as they are today originated from brands that are headquartered in Paris. Mm-hmm. And for them, one of the interesting things about luxury is going into what they call the Maison and feeling as though the Maison must accept you as much as you must accept buying the Maison. So it's like I'm going into the house of Louis Vuitton, okay? Louis Vuitton needs to look at me and be like, okay, you look like someone that could wear our stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to be democratized. And so what that's translated into in sort of this retail environment around the world is you go into a store and the store expects you to be on your best behavior just as much as they expect to be on their best behavior. But in America, that's not really how we want to buy luxury. We yep. want to go in and act as casual as possible, feel like we're the boss, yep, and then buy something expensive and feel like, you know, feel like a big shot. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Europe, we're supposed to, it's supposed to be like, um, are we going to date each other? Like, am yeah. I a Louis Vuitton man? And, and are you a Louis Vuitton, you know, like customer? Like, it's just, it's kind of this interesting dynamic that just doesn't translate well to the cultural expectations here. No. And then now when you add in social media, you know, and, and 
that whole world of like, just, you know, anybody that walks in, you know, they could look like a, a 16 year old boy, but have like 12 million followers and be the most influential person in the planet. You know, uh, you, you saw it in the fashion world where, um, the, the big fashion houses had to sort of begrudgingly finally invite social media influencers into the first <laughs> row of their fashion shows, you know, like, yeah, yeah. But, but they had to accept it because the numbers were there, the metrics were there. Um, so it's totally a revolution in, in that regard. And I think we're definitely seeing that in the watch world where like, there's just this, um, I, I've been seeing it a lot where, you know, a lot of people who are coming from the, the street art world and the sneaker world are now um, graduating in the watches and, you know, the watch world is becoming really mu much more accepting of it. They have to. I, I don't know if you know this, but I was the first person to basically make a full-time living being a watch blogger. No, and I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And I was, in many instances, the first, we'll call it like digital media journalist. I keep calling me a journalist. I, I, I don't think of myself as a journalist. I think of myself as like an editorialist, though I have journalism training. Mm -hmm. But bottom line is when I started going to these luxury trade shows and events, you know, the Basel Worlds and SIHHs, I was greeted as a, like, who's this scrappy kid from the street? I didn't mm -hmm. have a suit and tie. I had a bunch of camera gear and stuff like that with me that, you know, the other real journalists didn't have. They had like a notepad and a pen. Um, <laughs> and I was like, okay, where's the watches? Let's take some pictures. You know, that was once I even got in. You know, I remember there was a brand. It was, it was Tissot, actually. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. president of Tissot had to sneak me into the booth at Basel World so they could see the watches because, but bloggers like me were not officially allowed yet. Yep. I mean, that's actually what had to happen. And I had to, somebody called it grit. This I had grit. I had to like go up to a booth, talk my way in, like be kind of salesy about it. Like your average person would have never gotten in. I had to use a battering ram and I was, it was not at all, uh, uh, you know, uh, an easy path. I had a lot of setbacks. Um, I was even banned from a show one year and then reinvited the exact same year because again, I made us think about it because they hated sort of our style of like unfiltered opinion based right. fe immediate feedback from that. They hated it. I mean, the, uh, the fact that you could give an opinion freaked them out. And that's, <laughs> that's what I think differentiates this sort of new media is that it's through the filter of someone who has an opinion as opposed to sort of this neutral party who tends to be optimistic. And that throws brands off a lot and they hate it. But ultimately, all like people like us, people like me, I give the most, I'll call it say refined opinionated message. I'm polite. Mm -hmm. I try to stress the positive. The consumers themselves are not that considered. You know what I mean? Yeah. The brands need to realize, like, even though I'm opinionated, I am a polite opinion compared to what's really out there. Totally. And it's a little bit more elevated than just a, a layman coming and saying, like, this sucks. It's like, that's not constructive, you know? <laughs> At least you get yeah. to give some critical analysis. So it's 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 interesting that, you know, I've I've lived that. You're talking about, you know, seeing that. Um is it is it is it mission accomplished yet, or do you feel that brands and I'll call it internet media are still trying to figure each other out? Uh, we're in a really good place. I mean, I, I have to say, the the number of brands in different industries that have crossed my path and wanted to work together, wanted to collaborate, is really impressive. I mean, every week we are contacted by a brand that I am shocked that we're even on their radar. You know, so they're pretty cognizant of what's going on now. And I think these brands just have to realize that like they have to embrace it, accept it, still have like, you know, a level of discretion in who they choose to work with. Cause there's still, you know, like a lot of, uh, there's real players and then there's like, you know, fakesters and, and shysters. Right. So they still have to sort of vet them. But, um, I'm, I'm really shocked at the level of, of breadth and, you know, portfolio of companies that, are willing to call us and work with us. It's pretty amazing. So I think we're in a really good place. Now talk a little bit about your work with Hypebeast. Uh, for people who don't know, Hypebeast is, mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a street fashion blog that has a store and a sales component. Um, yep. I would very, call very them successful. the Vogue of street culture. Okay, the Vogue of street culture, perfect. Yeah. Um, and again, there's a, a lot of people that have tried to replicate that model, some successful, but Hypebeast has... A longevity. It's how long has it been around? Um, fifteen years. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. So basically about the same as a blog to watch. Blog to watch started in 2007. I think Hypebeast came just a little bit before that, mm-hmm. but a- around the same period of time. And it has been a real way for brands to sell stuff. I mean, they put something on Hypebeast. If Hypebeast takes it seriously, so do a bunch of other follower blogs and things like that. Like the needle is moved by Hypebeast. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the work you do with them and, and, and what it's all about over there. Um, I mean, I get covered on Hypebeast a lot because of the amount of sort of longevity and time that I've had in the industry. But uh, in terms of working with Hypebeast, um, I have a podcast on Hypebeast called The Business of Hype, which is a show that sort of dissects the intersection between creative entrepreneurs and the, the realities of the business that they have to run. So it's kind of like Forbes meets Hypebeast, if you will. Right. Um, and it felt like a good time for a show like that to happen because we, we had gone through enough of, hey, kid, follow your dreams. Quit your day job and just do you. Like we've, <laughs> we've done, we've been saying that for a decade. And the kid now is already like, all right, thank you. I've done that. What the hell do I do next? <laughs> you know, so like we need like the realities of how this actually can can manifest itself. Um, and so I, I created that show and I, I interview, you know, really successful creative entrepreneurs in all different fields. Uh, and we just talk about reality and it's really good. Um, that spawned off into a bunch of other shows that I, that I executive produced for Hypebeast. And then when they expanded their retail front called HBX to New York City, um, it, COVID sort of put a big monkey wrench in that. But for a while, I was helping them with uh, the launch of their New York City flagship. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. That's incredible. Now, New York City, you know, it's it's different today because of COVID. I mean, it's very, very different. It's obviously going to come back, but what do you think are some things that New York City can do uh, especially when the pandemic is over, to revitalize and you know maybe rethink. Because now that there's sort of a reset, there's an opportunity to maybe do things a little bit different. New York City has always been so important in the U.S. fashion world. Um, you know, w- you know, what, if you could if you could speak to the industry with some recommendations, what would you say? Two words: lower rents. <laughs> I mean, that's stage really what, advice. Stage that's, advice. That's really what it comes down to. You know, it's it's. It's the greed. You know, I understand capitalism. I'm a capitalist. I get it. You want to make as much money as possible. But it's it's the greed of the landlords to say, I would rather leave this storefront empty and unoccupied for five years than to just get a tenant in there that might not command top dollar rent, but can actually revitalize a block, maybe an entire neighborhood, maybe my whole building, maybe... It can be so cool that it can raise the the equity and capital level of my properties. They don't have that foresight. They're just like, if you can't pay the rent this month that I want, I don't want to talk to you. And I'd rather have an empty storefront that creates blight, that creates crime, that depreciates the entire value of the block and then the, the, the area. They'd rather do that. And it's just not cool to me. It's not just like, it's not good karma to do it that way, you know? Um, so this is, but this is a big thing, and not just in New York. I mean, Los Angeles is the exact same way. You know, I, I, uh, in on Melrose and Fairfax area mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, a lot of vacancies now, and I, I lived in that area for ten years myself, and I, I loved seeing all these cool little fashion places. And what you're saying is right. If the rent is too high, you can't have an entrepreneur come in there and try something. You know, right. it's almost as like you need to give people, but like. Here's two years of cheaper rent. It's going to go up. So you have two years to make it. That's good enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, 
but but this has been a historic issue where, where during recessions and things like that, storefronts get shuttered, and sometimes landlords keep them that way for years and years and years and years. I know I lived on Van Ness in, in San Francisco, and the entire time I lived in this place for seven years, there were businesses that were shuttered. I mean, I think no one in seven years has expressed some interest. So it seems to be a bigger issue than just saying, okay, we'll reduce the rent. You know, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it, it's greed. That's what it comes down it, it to. Is, it is. You know, you're, you're probably right. And sometimes that answer is very telling, especially in today's world, because it sounds like it's an insult if you used it like 10 years ago. But now it's literally saying someone is trying to hold out to make more money unrealistically. Yeah. And I wish they had a little bit more foresight because the way I see it, and I'm not a real estate expert, but whenever I, I am an art expert. And whenever I see all my artistic friends move into a neighborhood that is, you know, let's call it downtrodden or out in the skirts, whether that's like the arts district in LA or, you know, Bushwick or Bedford Stuyvesant in, in New York, or, you know, back in the day, um, I mean, the Lower East Side in New York City, right? All my artist friends would be gravitating towards this area. And you could almost guarantee that two years after all my artist friends move in, a Starbucks will open. Two years after that, a Chase Bank will open. Two years after that, a 60-story high-rise glass residential condominium will open. Like, they, the artists are literally revitalizing neighborhoods. And so if you have a struggling area and you're a landlord and you can't rent all your units out because you're waiting for CVS and Walgreens to come in, which I get, you want the security. But hey, how about you let the artists come in? Because time after time, decade after decade, you've seen that when artists come in, the brands follow, the corporations follow. That's like, I don't know. That seems like the easiest thing for me to notice so what you're saying and again this is interesting and, I, and again I, I think this is actually entirely on topic because what we know is this there's a lot of creative people out there a launch of entrepreneurs out there the cost of entry even though it's much less today than it used to be is still high and mm-hmm. if you want to get in front of consumers it's actually a better idea to open up a storefront in your city and at least try to appeal to, to your neighbors than to go online with some type of elaborate marketing campaign which you have to invent and, and pay for it yeah. So being able to have artists live and have a storefront and ideally, you know, produce whatever it is they want to produce in a way which is cost effective allows for a certain degree of, of experimentation, uh, evolutionary process, if you will, that we as a society should support almost as an investment. If, if municipalities actually designated certain things, you know, they have like r- low rent homes for mm-hmm. low income people. Yep. Well, yep. just throw artists in there at the same time. It's And students, if your job isn't going to make you any money for a while, we still want to at least encourage that because it, it creates culture, which does other positive things. Yep. I, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. I just feel very <laughs> yeah, passionate. I think about both it. of us. <laughs> we just we just went down a real estate. Uh, it's a political hole. issue, though. It is. You know, it's it's not it's not just a special interest because, like, oh well, we're in the luxury fashion space. We need there to be more of this. Like this. Why do cities like Los Angeles and New York get? the type of attention they do because they are creating culture. They're trying new things. Mm -hmm. Why does no one talk about like Omaha? Because things go to Omaha, but nothing comes from Omaha. Mm -hmm. Maybe good barbecue. (laughs) Well, I'm 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 talking about when it comes to exportable culture. And if you want good barbecue, you have to go there. You're never going to get Omaha barbecue (laughs) out of Omaha. But you can get New York fashion out of New York because it's an exportable thing. Exactly. So – America exports culture. We know this. That is mm-hmm. part of our soft power. Cities that have traditionally been good at creating culture should facilitate it through economic policy. Yeah. Maybe it needs to start at the federal level if that is America's greatest export now. It sounds like there's going to be a Jeff Staple lobbying group, like a think, <laughs> a think tank. If you have me on the board, I will always give my 100%. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So let's go back. Let's go back to watches. And we were talking about your interest in watches, but we didn't talk about some of the watches that you have made. Let's talk about the first watch that you created up until this, the, the, staple, the staple watch from Undone. Um, so we've done a Timex in the past, and we also worked with uh, the Bamford Group to create a Tag Heuer, which was very fun. Now, was that with George himself? Like, how did that all get set up? Because George tends to do stuff by himself. That was with George himself uh, over many, many WhatsApp messages. Um, (laughs) The cool thing about that is at the very 11th hour, 
Tag actually got involved officially as well, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, eventually, eventually, right? Yeah, but you know, George doesn't have to do that. He can just go rogue on his own, whatever he yeah. wants. But it was because I wanted to introduce uh, a apparel component into the collaboration. I wanted to make some clothing around it, and I was just gonna sort of make the clothing. <laughs> and George was like, "Well, you know what? Let me. I like the people at Tag. Let me run that by them." And they were like, oh my God, we love this. Uh, in fact, in the original design, I had sort of like tweaked and somewhat bootlegged the tag logo a little bit to make it fun, tongue in cheek, like, you know, so, and okay, also because okay. it wasn't the official collaboration, but then tag was like, no, he can use the official tag logo, like give him the tag logos, let him use the official one. And we want to make that, you know, we want to crescent Christian it like official. I was like, whoa, that's super cool so how can i how can i find these on on the website because i actually haven't seen the fashion side of what you did let's for, with a tag. see because I, the, the funny thing is i've actually had a similar idea because we've done we actually have been doing some shirts for brands and oh. one of the things that we we recommend is like let us make you a capsule collection and i actually recently did this with, with ublo uh because they they work with uh, uh sing blue uh, mm -hmm. to do stuff. And, and Maxime saying, well, he wanted to do a capsule collection. And they were just like, no. And it, it was so disappointing because it would have been such a good thing. You would have had some, you know, world-class design talent behind it. We could have really got to the community and it was just no. And, you know, I think Tag should do it more. I think Breitling should do it more. I mm -hmm. see brands being able to just literally license their name out to someone that knows what they're doing for gift with purchase opportunities, it'd be so great for authorized dealers to get authorized dealers yeah. to get people in there. You know, wouldn't you go to an authorized dealer if you could get a free shirt from them that you couldn't buy anywhere else? If you buy a watch from them, you'll get a shirt. It's cool. It's you know, it's 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 a high end thing, and that's the only way to do it. It just adds an exclusivity factor, and the brands are just like no. So you and I will have to keep pushing. Yep. If you, uh, I just try. If you Google staple tag Hoyer shirt. And okay. then look up the images, you'll see it. So okay. There's a lot, okay. actually, yeah. Now, what's, um, what's the deal with pigeons? A pigeon is our mascot. You know, if you look at Polo has the horse and Lacoste has the alligator, Staple has the pigeon. Okay, so it was just sort of, it represents, I'm guessing because of New York and there's a lot of, a lot of pigeons. Yeah, I mean, that's number one. Number two, when I was starting the brand, um, you know, I mean, like my parents objected to what I did. My, my girlfriend at the time objected. My friends thought I had lost my mind. I had just quit school. You know, I, I actually went to, before I went to Parsons for design, I went to NYU for journalism. I left, oh, I left NYU journalism school to then go to art school. And then I quit art school to freaking handprint t-shirts out of my basement. Uh, <laughs> and everyone thought I had lost my mind, you know, and here I am sort of like existing in downtown New York city, struggling to survive, trying to manifest this, this weird dream that I have. And, you know, I, I was seeing some traction. I was selling some stuff, but some stuff I'm talking about like 12 shirts, 24 shirts. And the people who would buy them would be like, Oh my God, I love that shirt to death. You know? So I have this, like, on the one hand, I have this really loyal, rabid, tiny minuscule fan base. And on the other hand, I'm trying to like make rent and eat ramen noodles every night. Right. And, right. and as I'm sort of walking around, late nights in New York City, I'm seeing pigeons all the time and sort of felt akin to their spirit. Like here they are, a, a bird in this urban jungle trying to survive, scraping for breadcrumbs, but yet thriving at the same time. And I was like, man, I feel like these pigeons were like, no one loves me, but yet I'm out <laughs> here. And so I, I adopted the pigeon as, as our mascot. By the way, I see the shirt. It's very, very cool. The yeah. one where you put the little pigeon in the, in the A. Yep. I mean, Tag ain't ever going to do that. And I'm, I'm kudos to Tag for being like, yes, official, let's do this. And I was like, wow, that's cool. So, you know, I'm sure Tag recognizes that they, they need to get younger as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, um, and, and what was it like when you went, because Timex is, you know, uh, a very mainstream brand. Tag mm -hmm. is, is a luxury brand. Did you use the same ethos when you're approaching both of those projects or when it came to a more expensive product where you like, whoa, 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 this is, this is a different deal. I have to think about it differently. Great question. Um, I never even thought about this cause it just comes so naturally to me, but I use the same ethos. Okay. Know? So it's just, 
what would I like? And then making sure double checking that what I like would make sense for our audience. And then I apply a lens that like making sure that it's still a collaboration and it still has to resonate with the brand that I'm collaborating with. I don't want to be off brand and too offensive or, or anything like that. You know, um, that's the, that's probably one of the secrets to how we've been able to maintain relevancy for 25 years in youth culture is not only doing things that the kid likes, but also doing things that the brand likes and, and making sure everyone wins, not like, the youth always wins and the brand you will always lose. If I went, if I went around doing that, I wouldn't last very long, you know? Um, so making sure that like the, the brand was also super stoked on what we were doing and whether that's a Timex or a tag, I think that is where it inherently shifts a little bit, even though I say I have the same approach going in, knowing that I want to do something that makes tag or Timex, you know, content and happy with the program. Sorry, that's my dog. (laughs) Uh, knowing that I want to, you know, make the, the, the partner happy will inherently have an influence and change up how the final outcome uh, comes out. So I want to go back to something you said that I think is really, really crucial. And you say you make a product that you want. And I know that sounds super simple, but I think that's actually part of the most important element of the formula of making these products accessible, whether it's a watch or a piece of a fashion item, is you have to first and foremost think about what do you like? You can never get in someone else's mind. You can never predict what's going to make the market happy. You just have to say, I want this to exist. And if there's enough other people out there that like what I want, and I do a good job of explaining the story of why I like it, it has a chance. But that seems to be the sort of perennial must-have in all of these equations. Yeah, the only, the only difficult part is if you say, I want to do this because I like it, and my quote unquote crew likes it. My, my crew of people likes it. You know, th- th- 10 years ago, that was 50 people. And now maybe that's a million people. So it's easy to say, I want to do this because I like it. And I know my crew of a million people will like it. And brands will be like, oh, yes, well, we want to do what you and your million people like. So it's easier now. But I have to always remember the buildup from when You know, uh, I remember when it was only me and a dozen people and trying to convince brands to do it my way, because then the brand's like, well, tell us, Jeff, why would we want to even attract you and your 12 friends? (laughs) No, that that makes sense, because to a degree, you know, they only think in numbers, right? So they have no idea how amazing or prescient your taste might be. You must yeah. have the, you might have the most prescient, you might be a prophet yep. and know what's going to come tomorrow. But all they know is you've sold X amount of units, you have X amount of followers. <laughs> yeah. Some 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 cold, heartless metric, right? Yep. yep. Now brands are getting smarter though. They realize that like putting your brand in front of uh, ten thousand people, just random people, versus 12 of the right people, there is a difference there. So they're beginning to really understand that you have to look beyond the, the metrics alone. No, I, again, and I just, I, I love asking these questions about the business of this stuff because I, again, I see so many people from the outside that either take it for granted or think it's way too easy. And, you know, when it's, when it's done really, really well, you know, like refined design, people are like, oh, that's simple. Well, you don't know how long someone spent tweaking it and try to pull stuff out. Yeah. Um, and, and you really see the difference. I mean, again, a trained eye can see that. But I almost tell people, if you want to do something artistic, at least dabble in art school. Like, this isn't something that people can just pick up. And I see so much today, especially the younger generation, who think that if they look at Instagram enough, watch enough YouTube videos, blah, 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 they have all the, like, video and photography and storytelling skills they need. No school required. <laughs> exactly. Overnight success. Yeah, what would you say to those people that think that they're they're smart enough to figure it out because there's YouTube videos on it? Yeah, I mean, I think there is there's a there's an argument there to be made that like you know you might not need three years of art school because you could learn everything you want on Skillshare or YouTube or something like that. But beyond the actual skill of learning how to like do Photoshop or video edit, there is um, a proving ground in experience that you can't just YouTube or Google. You know, so you can learn the skill for sure, but you still have to be able to apply that um, in a, in a right way. It's it's similar to when I first learned Photoshop. To be honest, 
I remember like I was going crazy with all the filters. You remember when you first discovered Photoshop filters? It's like, oh, everything's going to be glowing and blurry. (laughs) It's like, yeah, but it looks like shit. That doesn't matter. It's so much fun. (laughs) And 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 all they kept doing is adding more and more and more. Like you're not using enough. You need to be using more filters. Yep. And I remember when Nike ID first came out, which was the ability that Nike gave you to like make your own shoes. People were just putting 38 different colors on a shoe and it's like look how cool this is yeah but it's heinous it's like (laughs) oh yeah there's that (laughs) there's taste still um so yeah i am fine with you learning the skill set but you still have to be able to put the put the refinement in place and there's a there's a there's a picasso anecdote that really applies here where like i don't know if you've heard this story where you know picasso's sitting in the park and a woman comes by and she's like oh my god you're you're pablo picasso and he's like yes i am and She's like, would you mind, you know, you're sitting in the park. It doesn't look you're busy. Do you mind doing my portrait? And he's like, of course. And he pulls out a notepad, does the portrait of the woman. He tears it out and he gives it to her. And he's like, that'll be $50,000. And she's like, what are you talking about? That, that just took you five minutes to do. How are you going to charge me $50,000? That was five minutes. He was like, my dear, this wasn't five minutes. This took me my whole lifetime to do. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, yeah, it looks like five minutes. It looks like an overnight success, but it was, he dedicated his whole life to that moment. And for you to think that like, I'm just going to grade you, judge you or have you or charge you based on the minutes it took for you to do it. It's just not fair to the entire craft. You know, I I think again, my own experience and you know, what we do is we, we see watches, we take pictures of watches, we cover them and we try to be sort of, you know, we're a magazine. We're the voice of the community. We try to be a a consumer-driven publication. We've been doing so for a long time. And I thought a long time ago someone would come along and just do it better. Like there's like there's no way that I am at the top of this. I have no magazine experience. Like Mm -hmm. I'm putting my heart into it and I grew up reading a lot of magazines, but there's really no way that like someone isn't going to come along and materially improve. And (laughs) it hasn't happened yet. It really hasn't (laughs) happened. The ability to mix, you know, media production quality with competence and information dissemination and, and product curation, like literally no one has done it better, not even come close. And again, I, I, I actually wanted it to be more of a robust community. So I guess from <laughs> the other side, being that creative person who knows how hard it is to see others around you try and then crash and burn, it's a little bit satisfying because you're like, yeah, you know, it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think maybe in in my world there's a lot more competition. <laughs> um, so kudos, oh, yeah. kudos to you for doing a good job, and and also you know as you know innovating is is key. That's probably why you've been able to stay in the position that you have because of your constant need to innovate. Um, and yep. same with me. But the the competition in in fashion and street is like um, is is pretty big. So I'm always on my toes with the with the com- competition. I'm going to ask you a management question now, mm-hmm. and I always get curious about it because we, we have these two very opposed management ways of thinking, and I don't know which is right. Some blend there is. On the one hand, you have sort of this ultra-democratic process. Everything is decided by consensus. Committees are a good idea. Everyone's opinion should be taken into consideration. Um, you know, That's a way of making managerial decisions. Then the other side, mm-hmm. you have it's got to be about autocratic rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one or one or more people, a small number of people in power, more or less says what goes and their commands sort of go down the ladder. And while there are areas for creativity, for the most part, you got to do what the creative person or the upper management has in mind. Yep. I, I have found that in, when it comes to creativity, usually you have to support some person that has a vision, a singular individual that has a vision. You know, Steve Jobs had a vision. Yep. And other people had opinions were probably good, but they didn't necessarily go with his vision. And so I just want you to talk a little bit about sort of blending the importance of supporting one individual person's vision while also not having um, a oppressive autocratic regime in the office place. <laughs> Great question. I mean, I'd like to think that I have a blended approach, which is everyone gets to say their vote and have their input, but the buck does stop with me. <laughs> and um, I would say more often than not, I would say 60% of the time, an idea that's spawned from my team is the one that actually makes it through, I would say, uh, especially as now I'm entering you know, the, the quarter century mark of the brand. I've, I've sort of got a team that 
I just trust and they know me sometimes better than I know myself. And so an idea, like I might go into a meeting, for example, with an idea in my head and then, you know, my creative director will come with an idea that feels like an idea that I would have thought of, but I didn't. And he thought of it and I'm like, damn, that's good. And so, it's his <laughs> idea. And, you know, but the thing is, there's some entrepreneurs that take that as an insult that like, how, how dare you think of an idea that could be compared to my idea? Well, they're insecure. They're threatened. Yeah. yeah. And I take it as a compliment to my, my management and, and CEO skills that I've been able to raise these people to think me better than me. That to me is still a compliment to me. <laughs> they're, they're literally disciples. You've created disciples. Yeah. Uh, or I like to think of them as mind readers, <laughs> you know, that like, and that's, that to me is the greatest, one of the greatest marks of success. So I'm all about that. And like I said, maybe 30 or 40% of the time, there are times where like, we both have like a headbutt idea or they're both great ideas that we can't decide. And I agree at that point, you, you can't just keep lobbying and voting and, and, you know, focus grouping to death. And eventually, in a, especially in a creative company, you're totally right. Someone's just got to put their foot down and be like, it's this way. Let's keep it moving. Okay. That's, 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 that's <laughs> a great response. Cause again, you, you are a mentor to many people in the space and you've, again, to, to create an, an art, uh, you know, you read art department, mm -hmm. a creative agency. And I, I, when you look at the website, it doesn't really, help you understand the full breadth of what companies like this do. Like it's like what you do. I know the scope varies, but this is a hard operation to pull off. There's a lot <laughs> of moving pieces, like a lot of, moving, a, lot. a lot of things have to work, right? Just a couple of problems can completely derail a project. And, and that you've been able to do this for that long, just knowing that you've, you've made it and it's lasted this long, that that alone is impressive. And people should be listening to you on how to do it because a lot of these ideas crash and burn not because of a lack of good ideas, but like we said earlier, execution. Yeah, I know. I mean, tw like someone just told me recently that like, if you had a laundromat for 25 years, it'd be impressive or a hardware store. The fact that you've had a 25 year long agency that caters to youth culture, like where, you know, most of like, I'm 46, most of my customer base is 15. And like, I could be their dad. And for me to essentially convey that like what we're doing is cool to a 15 or 17 year old from a from a middle-aged man is is a <laughs> is a challenge in and of itself for sure I, I hear you well we'll have to continue talking about more of this in the future i hope we will but before we end let's talk a little bit more about the undone uh by staple yin yang watch um, i'm just going to describe the watch for people that that haven't seen it so it's based upon undone's 40 millimeter wide um i think it's called the, the base camp model this mm -hmm. was originally called it um, and then you went ahead and you took the case, you made it black. You have this dial, which is best explained as a yin yang with pigeon heads. Um, I think it's, <laughs> it's I think uh, it's very close. It sounds gross, but it actually is beautiful. I, trust me. <laughs> it, it, I, I agree. It's, it's very cool looking. And I'm someone that like yin yang. I actually designed a few watches that have yin yangs on the dial. I, I, not all of them were made. I can show you some that, that actually did have a yin yang in it and, and a logo that I made one time. But it's it's very well done. I love that you it's you know it's it's artistic and the yin yang, as I understand, is not a, an image that that tends to be a lot in in staple pigeon products. Like I haven't seen any yin yang stuff. So you came up no. with something new for this watch. Yep. Um, there's a, there's an available strap that also says staple on there, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things that I found which is interesting is I'm looking at the watch. I'm like, okay, red hands. Da, da, da. And they're like, no, they're not red. They're pink. And then you mm -hmm. look at it closely. And pink is a color that you have used in other stuff before. Yeah. And I love that you take a color that most guys wouldn't think they want to wear, but you put it against the right background and they wear it. And you're like, yo, I just got you to wear pink. And they're like, oh my yeah. God, you did. Yep, totally. I mean, the pink actually comes from the feet of the pigeon, which are always pink. Uh, so that's where the pink derives from. Okay, very good. There you yeah. go. There you yeah, go. I mean, like, I, I think um, what we did where we you know, executed the yin yang coming from these two interlocked, uh, black and white pigeon heads. And then, and then the Lume behind them, you know, I, I think the, the collaboration there was really great. Working with the undone team was awesome. Uh, and you know, anyone who looks closely at the, at the dial can see, uh, graphic design, illustration, color theory, you know, um, composition. There's a lot of thought that went into that, even in the bezel, you know, the bezel is also unique where it only has two digits on the bezel, um, 75 and 97, 75 being my birth year and 97 being the birth of the brand, 1997. 
and then our tagline, a positive social contagion. So that's the only things that you'll see on the bezel, uh, which I thought was also like a pretty cool thing. And if you notice the 75 and the 97 actually sit like where they would normally sit on a, on a bezel to a hundred, um, right. which is also pretty unique, you know, like 97 is sort of three ticks off of the 12 o'clock mark, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then you have the A where I guess the 12 o'clock mark would be. So it's, yeah. that's, it, it, it's, it's a fun. So did you design the doll yourself? Did yep. you sit with a designer? So it was no, all you? Yep. We designed it. Yeah, completely. Uh, I, you know, I have a team of, I have a team of art directors and designers. So I envisioned the whole thing, sketched it out. They refined right. it, pushed the pixels, but this is fully a, a staple creation. Now the price point you know, compared to the Tag Heuer, for example, it's it's a lot less. Mm-hmm. It might, it's probably a little bit more than, of course, the Timex yep. one. What do you think is a good price point for your demographic? Because I think there's a lot of brands that are interested in the sort of, again, street culture, for lack of a better term, demographic. But they have no idea what price point to sell them at. Is there elasticity on price points that will work or is there a relatively narrow range? Um, the sweet spot for our demo is probably in the two to four hundred dollar range. Okay, um, and it's With like all all items or watches. Watches, watches. Okay. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think to our demo, uh, a watch is in many ways like a sneaker. It's something that you can have, you know, maybe five to to twenty of in your collection. Uh, you can rotate them throughout the day. You can match them to your outfits. And so, a sneaker, you know, an expensive sneaker is sort of in that two hundred dollar range as well. I think. Uh, a person in our in our demographic understands inherently that there's more that goes into a watch than into a sneaker. Interesting. So they're willing to pay for that, um, and that's why you know, uh, like for instance, G-Shock, which is another brand that we've collaborated with before. Uh, G-Shock just kills it in our industry because they've just got that sneaker price sweet spot in there. You know, with a little bit of obviously like limited editions can go up to a thousand, but like it, the sweet spot is in like the hundreds. But I mean, that's so fascinating that the actual, the bar is set by shoes, right? Yes, currently. Because they know about about shoes first, they learn about that. And then it's sort of like with other consumers and cars. A lot of consumers, cars is the first really expensive thing that that they sort of start to think about. And so everything is like, is that more than the car? Is that less than the car? People do that watches. Well, that that watch is a lot more than the car, right? But with... A newer demographic where cars a younger one, yeah, seventeen aren't as relevant for them. It's it, the most expensive, fancy thing. A lot of them think about are shoes, and so watches should align with, uh, I guess you could say, compatible value propositions. Yeah, I mean, uh, the seventeen-year-old kid is for most brands in the world that are attracted. You know, not a luxury brand, but like a brand that's sort of inherently interested in youth culture. The seventeen-year-old kid is the most important person in the world. Because as a 17-year-old kid, that is the last year in your life that you don't give a shit about anything. Once you turn (laughs) 18, you think about college, you think about rent, right? You have a proper girlfriend, you got to buy that girlfriend something or other. 17, you're living at home, it's your last year of freedom before college happens. And nothing matters to you, nothing, you're impervious, you're invincible, you know? Yeah. And that 17-year-old is the coolest kid in the world. (laughs) You know what? On that note, on, you know, 17 is a really cool time. (laughs) Jeff, thank you so much for for joining me on Superlative. Everyone, you've been listening to Jeff Staple, the founder of Staple Pigeon and Reed Art Department. We're talking about his limited edition Undone Watch and a lot of cool other things. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, this was amazing. Had a great time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?